Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we will be hearing the full NAM Oral History interview with Al Bell, the songwriter, record producer, and co-owner of Stax Records. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. So welcome back to another episode. This is very exciting. Uh, today we're going to be hearing from Al Bell, uh, his NAM oral history interview from December of 2018. Um, a very interesting person, uh, very influential during the civil rights movement, and uh, honestly one of the most interesting interviews in the collection. Mike, that was very well said. I completely agree with you. You know, I feel it was a humbling and and extremely a, a, a privilege, uh, opportunity for me to have met him. Uh, Mr. Bell was so gracious and it was so insightful to me. Um, he told us all of his stories and he has many stories to tell. And it was just so incredible to me. I felt like we were part of history just listening to this history. If that sounds silly to you, I don't know. It's something I've reflected on many, many times since that interview. I learned some things. I uh, embraced his philosophies and... Um, and I understood better the, the path that he's had to, to walk, uh, not always by choice. And I've come to appreciate the music that he has produced and provided us probably even more so just by knowing the man behind, uh, behind those records. So, um, yeah, to say it was a privilege is sort of an understatement, really. And, um, but you know, it's equally, a privilege to share it with you guys. So I appreciate you tuning in and listening to this podcast. You're going to hear all kinds of stuff about Stax Records, the fact that Mr. Bell knew Martin Luther King. Um, you know, it's, it's history. And, and I hope that you come away from this as I did, um, a, a greater appreciation for the path that, uh, that Mr. Bell has, has walked. Definitely an impressive path that he has walked for sure. Uh, just even you naming some of that stuff. I mean, that's such a big, big league kind of thing of stack records and Martin Luther King and just being a part of all of that. But like any great story, you have to have the origin of where he all began, uh, where it all began. Uh, so what we're going to listen to right now is, uh, how he kind of got into music and realize what a passion he had for that. So here is Al Bell. Thank you so much for inviting us to your home today. I appreciate it. Well, I thank you. I'm humbled and I'm honored that you cared enough and think enough about me to even want to talk to me. I'm just a fellow from Brinkley, Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you grew up, sir. That's where I was born. Okay. I was there for five years and then my family moved to North Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm. I grew up in North Little Rock, Arkansas. 
And tell me, I'm kind of curious. Did you have a lot of music in your home and your family when you were a little kid? I did not. I did not. But I grew up. My father, well, I take that back. Not a lot of music, but my father played harmonica. And that was his relaxation, his enjoyment, I guess. And when he wanted to get away from everything, he'd just sit down and play his harmonica. Uh, and um, when uh, during the ages of one through five, living in Brinkley, Arkansas, we lived out from the city because we were farm. My father was a farmer, so we had the farms. But they'd go into Brinkley on Saturday night, the city, because that's when the musicians came in and played their music on the corners and what have you. And I got a chance to see and hear uh, Louis Jordan, uh, who's a distant relative of mine and Blind Lemon and all of those kind of singers. But my father played there when he played, played his old, I think it was an RCA back then, but his, his phonograph record player. And uh, he had one set of 78s that he kept current and they were on Lewis Jordan. So, so at home, uh, I'd hear him play from time to time. It would just be playing in the background, Lewis Jordan. And I fell in love with Lewis Jordan, his singing, his writing and all of that and tried to sing, <laughs> just to myself though, but not professionally, just tried to sing. Because in my mind, at that time, he was just so creative and I didn't even know what, you know, at that age, creativity was, but it was different. And uh, his lyrics, I mean, the way he wrote his lyrics, the stories he told, a Friday Night Fish Fire, ain't nobody here but us chicken. I love the creativity and how he told that story about the chickens. I mean, living on the farm, but he brought it into a perspective where you could see it based on just your, a female-male relationship. It was just great, just great. But, but that's the music that I grew up on. There wasn't a, a great deal of other music around my house. My uh, mother, wow, tried to get me to take piano lessons and um, I, I think I, I made it for about two weeks on that, <laughs> and I gave up. So you'll know up front, I can't sing, I can't dance, my sense of rhythmic timing is horrible. I couldn't carry a tune in a vacuum packed can, I mean, it's, and wanted to sing early on. I tried to sing in a little quartet with some guys when I was about 15 or 16 years of age, and they were so great and I was so bad. I quickly left that alone. <laughs> in high school, I sang in the Glee Club, uh, which was the smallest section of the choir, uh, of the high school choir. And uh, I was very good at pantomiming and hiding behind the, the, the tenor singer that was in front of me. <laughs> so my, I, don't think, I know my music instructor never knew that I was hiding. I mean, I was real good. Didn't know I was pantomiming them, but I knew how to make my mouth move based on the lyrics and the song and the body language. I got all of that. <laughs> but other than that, that's me as far as uh, uh, background mm. in music. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a business person, but, but I'm very, very creative. And the gifts that I have that uh, allow me to function in this business is I can hear and I can feel. There's a reason for that. When I was uh, in high school, uh, my uh, junior year, uh, my, my friends were, were mostly girls. My best friends were girls back in high school. And part of that was because I went out for the basketball team. The guys on the team were so great. 
far superior to me until I ended up sitting on the bench all the time and I said, I gotta leave this alone. <laughs> I went out to run track. I was gonna run the mile and the guy could run the mile. He was close back then to breaking the national record. I said, I may as well go and sit down. So I went to the other end of the building and got with the girls. And I started focusing on physics and chemistry and biology and I was super in it, great, super in it. Pre-med major when I entered college because my, my biology professor who loved the way I dissected a frog, because I didn't just dissect it, I did it artistically. You know, I don't know what caused me to do that. And he, after I dissected my frog, he would go and show it around to the class, because he, he was proud of it. But he said to me, uh, Al Virtus, what you need to do uh, when you enter college is uh, uh, study uh, uh, medicine and, and become a surgeon. He said, you understand the sciences, and you have the long fingers, so you should become a surgeon. And that's why I became a pre-med major uh, in college. But in high school, these girls got together, my dear friends, and they decided that uh, they wanted me to run for student council president. So I said, after they convinced me, I said, okay. So they set up my campaign. They ran the campaign, and I won and was elected student council president. And shortly thereafter, they came to me and said, uh, we'd like for you to go to the principal and have the principal allow us to have, back then, record hops, discos or whatever, after the football games and the basketball games. Well, this is like 1957, you know, and here we are, a segregated school, very, not too much, not, not many facilities. I said, you, 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 you all are asking me quite a bit. They said, we elected you student council president. We insist that you do that. That was my first uh, in introduction to politics. <laughs> so I went to the principal and fortunately I was able to make a presentation that was acceptable to the principal and he said, you can do it. So you can have, you can have uh, uh, the record hops after every game, I'll schedule it, set it up. You can send the bus out if we we're off campus and have them bring the kids back here, you know, if they didn't have the automobiles or the transportation, he did all of that. Mm. He said, uh, now, I don't want anyone to touch the stereo player but you. And it's your responsibility. If anything should happen to it, you're gonna have to get paid for it getting fixed. Said, so you can go and have the record hops and get, get, get the stereo player and fine. I said, well, what, what about music? He said, oh, we don't have any recorded music nor do we have any money in the budget to acquire any. I said, but how can I do a record hop, you know, and I got to play music and not play music? He said, that's your problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went back to my constituents <laughs> and told them the problem. They said, no problem, we'll handle that. We'll get our classmates to let, loan you your, the records so you can play them uh, on Friday nights and you give it back, the records back to them on Monday. I said, okay. And these girls got with me. Now, this is really my first real introduction to music in, in, in junior high school uh, and really in my, in my senior year in high school. Those girls would sit down with me and help me organize the order in which I should play the music. They'd talk to me about each song, tell me about that song, what that song meant, why they liked that song. And they would also tell me at a certain point in time, a certain song to play 
which would be a ballot after having played so many up tempos. And what they were going to do at that point in time is go get their guys who wouldn't like to dance or was afraid to dance, the wallflowers as they call them, get those guys and take them off the wall and bring them out on the dance floor. Well, I grew later on to appreciate that it would be a, it would be a ballad or a slow song because they knew the guys didn't know many dance moves, so you didn't have to do too many dance moves <laughs> to dance, and, and it worked. And, and, and I would ask the students, when I would give them their records back that Monday, what is it that you like about this song? Why did, you know, and, and the guys would tell me, but the girls would really, really tell me and gave me in-depth insight back then. Twilight Time by, by, by the, uh, God, Yeah, the Platters, Platters, Platters. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> run, Red, Run by the Coasters. <laughs> okay. But anyway, um, so, so, so I went on through that in, in high school, and I began to see sitting there on, on, on that stage looking out at them on the floor, I began to see how music affected people. I saw little nuances, you know, just guys that wouldn't, wouldn't dance that much, but music started playing and a certain record would come on and I would, and I noticed, I said, this music is making them feel good. And part of it, I guess, was the way the girls had me programming, but generally speaking, I grew to appreciate it was just music, period. So I understood at that level uh, at least my understanding of the power and influence that music could have on people. Because sometimes they would be talking and you play a certain record and the room got quiet because everybody was listening to that particular record. Well, I, I uh, entered college, pre-med major, and uh, out of nowhere, unsolicited, next thing I know, the station manager was getting in touch with me at the local radio station, offering me as a job as a disc jockey and put me on the air and uh, set another jock in the control room with me to operate the equipment at that time because I didn't know how to operate the equipment. You know, at that, during that period of time, we're talking 1958, uh, it, you know, you had to have an FCC license in order to be able to handle the equipment because you weren't just playing the music on the turntables. You had to even deal with all of the, the, the other equipment that generally the engineer dealt with, but you had to deal with while you were on the air. Mm. So I had a disc jockey to teach me that and pretty soon, uh, I was doing my regular radio shows, but when people would call in, and which was all of the time, I'd take the time to answer the phone because they would call in and request their records, and they wanted me to play for them. And I'd ask once again, well, why did you want me to play it? What is it that you like about it? And they would explain once again, the ladies would explain it to me far better than the men and more, more details. And I, so I really began to understand music. It got to a point where once I would hear a song, hear a request for a song, it, it, I might play it one time, but then I'd go back and listen to it 10 or 15 times or many times as I had to, to be able to write the lyrics down. So if you recall, back then it was the 45s, you know, in the stereo, so you had to put the needle back. It, it took a long time to do it, but I wrote so I'd know the story that way I was what they called, became what they call a personality jock. So if I was playing a piece of recorded music and I wanted to put my personality in it and say, ow, well, I knew when to do that and not step on the vocalist or step on, on any of the musicians because I'd listen to everything that the musicians were playing and didn't realize that I was learning music, but I really was learning how to hear music 
and learning how songs are written. I didn't know that, but I was learning how to write songs. Uh, and, 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 and I heard and understood arrangements. But now not being a musician or vocalist, I couldn't talk about it in a technical sense, but I just could hear it and knew when things were the way it was supposed to be. So by the time I got into the recorded music industry, I already had my master's degree <laughs> in, in knowing what music to play to make people feel good. And uh, that just led on to my success in the recorded music business as, and it's, it's that way today. It's based on what I hear and what I feel. It doesn't matter about the genre. My gift is I can hear authenticity, I can hear the passion, I can feel the spirit in the singer, and can hear when that spirit that I feel in that, in that singer or that musician is being manifested in how uh, they, he or she performs the song. That's kind of a long story, short version of how I got started off into this business. Can't play, could, couldn't, couldn't play, couldn't play, I can't play anything under the sun. No instruments, nothing. That's fascinating. Yeah, 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 I can't, I can't. But I know, but I know, but I know I can even, I, I, I've had, literally I was doing a session on Bobby Bland and I was sitting in the studio, we had the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra playing and I heard a, what I knew was something wrong with a note on the violin and I went out to tell the violin player, I said, you know, you hit a, a, a note that wasn't correct. He says, what do you mean? I didn't hit a note that wasn't correct. I said, but you did. He said, was it, was it, what key was it? And was, was it sharp? I said, I don't know. I just know it was incorrect. I did not hear the correct, incorrect note. So I went back and I got the engineer to back the tape up and come to that point. I said, okay, play it right here. And I told the man, I said, I listened to it. And he listened and he said, well, I'll be damned. How did you know that? I said, I don't know. I just know it didn't sound right. <laughs> I didn't know. But that's how deep I am into music based on my ability to hear and feel. That's amazing. I mean, we, we always talk about trying to give the gift of teaching somebody to have big ears, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's it. You've got to have that. And, yes. And to develop it under those circumstances, I think is very unique. It is, because what it did, it caused me to appreciate the music, how the music affected people. But I listen to music and listen to music today from the people's vantage point, hmm. not my own personal, just the people's vantage point. I, I, I'm like that. When I go to a concert and, and, and we, we, we're trying to uh, enjoy a performance or to see an artist perform that we're interested in, I always sit in the back of the room, very back, so I can see everybody and see the artist on stage and how they are re reacting to the artist and what the artist does. During my Stax days, I did that quite often. And the artist, and many times, didn't even know I was there. But I saw and saw nuances and things and how the people were reacting and responding to that and knew how to share that with the writers and the producers, which enabled them to capture things that the artist wasn't consciously aware that they were doing. But that's just... This is me and my approach to fooling around with this music and having fun with it and loving doing what it does to people. Okay, let's pause for just a second as we get into this amazing interview with Al Bell as part of the um, Music History Project podcast, you guys, just because I wanted to make a, a little point that he made um, a little bit bigger, and that is while he was a disc jockey, he was honing his skills 
as a listener of music and being able to understand elements of songs that would become popular is not an easy skill to develop. And I think that it was already a part of his listening, but he kind of made it seem like, well, yeah, I was at the radio station and I kind of knew what a hit record was. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, as his entire career is about to develop in front of us, as this interview continues, uh, you can see that this small little thing was a large part of how he knew why this song should be on the B side versus the A side, which was a big deal back in the radio days and, um, and why we should sign this artist and, and maybe not these others. So, um, yeah, just an amazing, um, talent and it's kind of cool to hear it sort of develop. So let's jump back into it. Uh, with that said, I can't wait for you to hear, uh, his stories about Otis Redding and some of my heroes coming up. So back to Mr. Al Bell. So how did you get from the DJ situation onto Stax? Well, well, uh, uh, in 1965, well, in, in 1963, I came through Memphis, Tennessee in radio. I was on radio in Little Rock. Then I was hired uh, to work at uh, WLOK in Memphis, Tennessee. And while there, I met Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. It was David Porter who would come by the station and talk to me. He was kind of like promoting the music and promoting himself and promoting stacks. And I went by, met them, developed a relationship with Jim and Mrs. Axton, left Memphis and went to Washington, D.C. in radio. Um, and uh, based on the things that I had learned in Washington, D.C., I went in playing a different kind of music than that was being played in Washington because radio stations were playing Motown and what they call a doo-wop kind of music at that point in time. And I came in with that soul from down south <laughs> that I knew you could feel. <laughs> and inside of me, I knew that the people in Washington, D.C., I mean, you know, Washington, D.C. is just a part of Maryland and a part of Virginia, you know, so they're southerners and it's in their blood. So I didn't go in doing that other stuff. I went in playing the two records that were coming, being released at Stacks, and the songs that I had been playing in radio in Little Rock, Arkansas, and in Memphis, Tennessee, and I knew what those people had told me. So I started playing them in Washington, D.C., and the station manager uh, told me one day, said, listen, Al, uh, you can't uh, play some of this music that you're playing here in Washington, D.C. He said, see, what you don't understand is blacks in Washington, D.C. are more sophisticated than blacks down south. So you've got to play a, you know, a different kind of music. That music you're playing, it's all right, but blacks are more sophisticated here. Well, I went into the radio station the next morning. I was doing 6 to 10 and, 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 and 3 to 7 morning drive, afternoon drive. And I went on the air. I did my morning show. Uh, from from uh, where the, the location of the transmitter, which was out in Maryland on the golf course, and I went there that morning and and and, and locked the door, so I, I just make sure nobody could come in on me, and I just because I knew what I was getting ready to do, and I got on the radio, and told the people I said uh, Dan Dina, who is the owner of this radio station, told me that blacks don't like this music that I'm playing, and. Uh, if, if, if you disagree with him and, uh, and you like this music that I'm playing, if not, he's going to stop me from playing it 
uh, I want you to call him on his home telephone and let him know whether you like this music or not. <laughs> By the time my show ended at 10, someone was knocking on the door, but it was an engineer trying to get in. He wasn't coming, he was just, just trying to get in and couldn't get in. I didn't know, I said, oh, this is it. And the phone rang, there was a line, phone line from downtown. The station was located at 815 V Street, downtown. Well, and, and the, I don't know what section of DC you call that, but anyway, nice location. And the, the lady, uh, I can think of her name now, but she said, Mr. Dina wants you to come down to the office immediately. I said, oh well, this is it. So <laughs> what am I gonna do? So I drove from uh, out there in Maryland all the way downtown and I started getting close to the station. So no parking, cars everywhere. And I had to park several blocks away and start walking up to the station. As I got to the station, I saw all of these people out in the streets that, uh, in front of the radio station and Dan Dina, who I love him, he was a little short guy maybe about five, 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 six, and he smoked those Cuban cigars that were longer than he was tall. <laughs> he was out with his Cuban cigar, and I kept, there he is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Al Bell. This is, and he just went on and on and Al, just hug these people, interact with these people, enjoy these people, let them feel you, give them your signature, et cetera, et cetera. And I was out maybe for 45 minutes interacting with these people. Afterwards, he said, come on in the station. When in the station, he gave me a $200 a week raise and made me assistant manager <laughs> of the station. <laughs> well, I'll give you that just because just it was a part of my, part, part of my life, but that, that which I learned at Jones High School and, and what I learned at uh, KOKY here in Little Rock, Arkansas and things that I was taught by my mentors at that time uh, is what has brought me from uh, that period of time till present. Now, while in Washington, I started playing the Stax music. Otis Redding Try a Little Tenderness was popular, but it hadn't exploded nationally because it was being played on WLAC out of Nashville, Tennessee, John R., which was a 50,000 watt AM station that covered about 17 states and, uh, 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 so, and blacks if they wanted to hear any music on there because it was country music during the daytime, but at night they play R&B. So John R. was playing that trial of tenderness and in those markets, not trial of tenderness, uh, these arms of man. Mm. And uh, it was popular in all of those markets that that station covered, but no one was playing it in any place else. Well, I started playing it in Washington, D.C., and boom, she broke out nationally. And that's before going to Memphis, I'm playing this role now and helping develop this artist named Otis Redding. And um, uh, from time to time, Jim Stewart would talk to me and send me demos on music that they had recorded and ask me my thoughts and I'd give him my thoughts and I didn't know but he would take them seriously and go back and make the changes or the adjustments and send me back another demo where I could hear it. And I said, I like it, I like it, I like it, man, I'm gonna play it and I'd start playing it and they would start selling it. And um, uh, I got a call from Jim one day and he said, Al, um, um, we're Estelle and I have talked so we are 90,000 in the hole and about to go under. And because of uh, uh, your respect out here by other disc jockeys and your belief and understanding our music, we believe that if you would come here and work as national radio promotion 
and talk to these other radio stations about our music, that you could get the music played and help increase sales and help us turn the company around. And if you do so, we'll give you equity in the company. And um, I thought about it for a while. And um, I had started up two labels myself at that time. I started a record label in Washington, I mean, in Little Rock called Devoice, D-E apostrophe V-O-I-C-E. And then in Washington, D.C., I started another label and was distributed by Atlantic just as Stax was. Uh, that label was Suffice, S-A-F-I-C-E. I had Eddie Floyd. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 all of, all, all of that. <laughs> and really had a record that was breaking. Uh, uh, I can't think of the title of that. Every, everybody makes a mistake sometimes was, was the title of that record. And it was breaking in Virginia, Maryland, and, and D.C. itself. But Jim said, if you come, come Al, please do. Uh, 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 we believe you can help turn it around. And uh, I finally said, um, after talking to my wife about it and talking to a friend of mine at Atlantic Records, his name was Joe Medlin, who was a singer, great artist and a national promotion person. And I said, Joe, uh, uh, the, the Jim Stewart is asking me to come to Memphis and work with them at Stax from a promotional standpoint. Well, Atlantic distributed the label. Joe said, Al, let me tell you something. With what you're doing uh, in the music business, your ears, and he spoke to ears, he said, and your relationship with these disc jockeys out here, you can go and do what you want to do in this business that stacks because there's no other company out here, production company, that has the sound that's coming out of stacks. I said, well, what's in your mind is different about it? He said, that bottom sound. I said, what do you mean bottom sound? He said, that bass, the way the bass plays, and the kick drum, the way that guy plays the kick drum. He said, no other label has a bottom sound like that. He said, and what you know, you can turn it around. So I think you should take that, take that, take that offer and go on to Memphis, Tennessee. I asked Jim Stewart, I said, okay, I'll, I'll come, Jim. Uh, uh, what can you pay me? He said, well, I, I can pay you $100 a week. And uh, Atlantic from, uh, 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 Jerry Wexler from Atlantic said he would give you $100 a week. I said, but Jim, I'm making five figures and made five figures in Washington, D.C. I'm in Washington, D.C., booking the Howard Theater and all of that. He said, but Al, we'll give it to you in cash. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> Thought about it for a minute. I said, man, <laughs> after my wife said, let's go. If that's what you want to do, let's go. So we went to Memphis and the, the rest is history. My first, my first record that I was able to break out of there after listening to a lot of hits that were in the can was a session that was taking place at that time on an artist called Sam and Dave. And I'm sitting in the, in, in the control room listening to them as they produce a song titled, You Don't Know Like I Know. And I'm saying I knew where that, that, where, that, where, where that phrase came from out of the church. You don't know like I know what the Lord has done for me. But the rhythm feel they had on it, which was authentic, but they had a little twist on it, you know, because Al Jackson and Steve and Duck uh, uh, they, 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 they knew how to they knew how to record and play music around the sound and the authenticity that they heard and felt coming from the artist so it was really sounding more like the artist than the music was just an extension 
of the artist. I came in and I said, uh, by that time, uh, I had uh, relationships with disc jockeys. We only had about 50 radio stations that programmed black music. And uh, I got to all of the part-time jocks because I knew the part-time jocks worked on the holidays while we were coming into Christmas. We work on the holidays. This was right around Thanksgiving when this was recorded, or maybe a bit a little bit before then. Uh, uh, and I got in touch with them. Said, "Look, I'm going to send you a record, and it's a record that you can play on Christmas Day and make a hero out of yourself." All of the stations at that time played the Christmas songs. You know, it was just one Christmas song right after another. And I would go through a series of songs. I said, "You can play that, and then play you don't know like I know." I said, and people are going to feel it, I said, and it's just adding different color to your programming. And they bought into it. Well, they were part-time jocks, so they had the freedom and liberty to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did it. And I got to tell you, Christmas Day, on most of those 50 stations across that country, you heard all of the standard Christmas songs, and then you don't know like I know. And the very next day, our first order for that record was 13,000 units the next day. I mean, after the, and that was my first. <laughs> but again, it's it's it, it's about um, music that makes people feel good. In the middle of the Christmas songs, well, here was a little break as a disc jockey. You know, I understood what that could do, but having the guts to do it takes guts, because uh, it was traditional that you play only Christmas music on Christmas Day, and adding that in made it stick out like a sore thumb, but more importantly, it was something that made the people feel good in the middle of all of this Christmas music that they were enjoying at that point in time. And that's, that's how, it, it took me from the time that I hit the steps at Stacks in less than, or right at one year, uh, I had taken that company from 90,000 in the hole to a million dollars that it was generating in revenue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the music was there, but I knew, I knew what stations, what disc jockeys, and what market to send it into a release into. I kept 12 or 13 singles in the marketplace at one time after I got to rolling, because I'd have it in different markets and then get waiting on it to get traction in those markets and then spread out from that individual market or that region until I could spread it out across the country. That was, I mean, it was just taking advantage and working with what you had to work with. Mm you know, and not taking no for an answer, and them not knowing I didn't take no, but they walk around one day and realize that something caused them to play a record that they said they weren't gonna play. And that's because I'd go around them to all the little bit of tertiary stations and the little homemade radio stations that they had back then and get my records played. <laughs> and it would start word of mouth, people talking about and calling into the station requesting, and the stations would have to play it. So this is the, uh interview that we're listening to is Al Bell and his uh, just really inspirational life that he lived and his um, just perspective on things I think is so fantastic and interesting. And so he's been talking a lot about getting into the DJ business and radio and, um, you know, kind of the issues or roadblocks that he that he experienced um with the music that he was playing at those stations and so now we're going to listen we're going to hear a lot more about the civil rights movement and the effects that that had on on him as well as his career just really great insight that you're going to hear from him of just the struggles that they dealt with and 
and it's amazing just the persistence that he had and everyone had uh, to make sure that they could keep moving forward and, and producing all that great music that we all love so much. Uh, so here is more on Al Bell. At that same time, it's kind of interesting to me because we've heard in history about black radio stations. Right. And that was starting to change during this time, right? I mean, was that still... Uh, no, it was still black. It was still... But, well, well, what do you mean changed at that time? Well, integration more. Right. I mean, we well, don't talk about that. It, it, no, we had thing, But that, it was very prominent during the early 60s, right? And... But that was changing, I thought. No, 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 just like in the Constitution, we were first a beast of burden in the Constitution, and they changed it and made us semi-human, if you read the language. And, uh, but just because they made that change, that didn't change the hearts and minds of the people. So that, that, that racism permeated America. It was there uh, uh, more profoundly in, in, in the South, but you had it in all of the other uh, cities and states in America. It, it, had, it, had, it had not gone, as a matter of fact, up until Dr. King's death, the changes, and then they were, they, they were, they, they were, they were minor, and, and they were changes that represented, in some instances, progress uh, for us uh, as an American citizen, but in other instances, it uh, was retrogressive to this extent. We, uh, you know, America is a capitalistic society with a capitalistic form of government, a republic. And um, uh, if you look at and study history, you'll find, and we knew, I knew at least at that point in time, that all of the ethnic groups that came into America, primarily in, from Europe, uh, but other places, they, they, they would set up their own economic base and once they built an economic base, then they were able to mainstream themselves from that economic base that allowed them to influence politicians because they you know, participated in the campaigns and funds and all of that kind of stuff. Well, up until integration in, 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 in 1957, 58, supposedly uh, 59, uh, we were building our own economic base. We had our own restaurants, we had our own funeral homes, we had our own banks, we had our own insurance companies, we had our own hotels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just like every other ethnic group. But when we started to integrate, then integration caused us to stop going into our restaurants to try to break down the wall so that we could integrate and go into the white restaurants instead of saying this water fountain have on it for coloreds only, or Negroes, or whatever the case might be, for white only. But that was changing some of that. But it didn't change the attitude of the people uh, uh, at that point in time. So racism was alive and well. What was happening to us with those 50 radio stations, which is really important, 
because it shows the value of this music art that comes from the African-American culture. But we would get play on an artist on the 50 stations and once we reached number one and top in that status, then our music was covered by the white artists. Pat Boone was great at it, and, and many others were influenced by it. I mean, Elvis was influenced by it. But Elvis would sing, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, you ain't nothing but a bear cat. <laughs> you know, was, <laughs> you know, and, 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 but, and they would say, well, well with, with the blacks, what they keep doing is they keep changing music so much. Keep well, we weren't changing. It's just that we had to record something else because the white artists had recorded it, and we had to have another record out to be able to work the chitlin circuit which was a small group of clubs across this country where only blacks were attending and some whites would ease around. They, they loved the music. Uh, 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 they were saying that uh, we were so creative that we kept changing our music, but we didn't change. It was that once we got to the top on those 50 black stations and we were covered by the white artist, then we had to go back and record another piece of recorded music so that we could continue working the Chitlin circuit and that small group of clubs located across the country where we could go in and play and work. So that, that um, I, I don't know whether I covered the depth of what you were talking about, or your, of your question, but racism was alive and well and functioning profoundly from a personal standpoint uh, I'm, I'm one that does not believe in, and I've been this way since I was 16 years of age, that does not believe in it can't be done. So even though all of that stuff was going on and you can't do this and you can't do that, as it related to marketing our music and making progress in the marketplace, I always was, thank thankfully, able to figure out or was given to me a way to navigate my way around it through it, over it, under it, or whatever, and get to where I was trying to get to. Sometimes it would take me quite some time, but eventually I got there, in spite of that racism. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, along those same lines, one of the things I was hoping to, to chat with you a little bit is your thoughts on the role that music played during the Civil Rights Movement. What comes to mind in thinking about that? Well, let, let me explain this. Um, you know, the the first music uh, on 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 this geographical turf, if you will, that um, that we now call America. Prior to it being America, the music that was here was the music of the natives and those that uh, this land belonged to that had grown up on this land. After they brought us over here as uh, slaves to and had taken over the land, uh, they uh, uh, put us in the cotton fields and the tobacco fields and whatever to grow and help them build this, this, this country. But they wouldn't allow us to talk because they were afraid of us communicating with each other. And what we learned to do was to sing and communicate through song. I mean, we would be in the cotton fields, the tobacco fields, uh, wherever, and start singing. Well, Massa didn't know we were communicating. Uh, just a little light one. I mean, you might hear us in, 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 in the cotton fields 
singing. There's going to be a meeting tonight. That was the unstated part. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Well, everybody knew where we were going to ease and meet that night and knew where that place was next to those trees down by the riverside. So we communicated through our, our, our music. And um, as we went to the, the, the churches, when we were allowed to go to church, well, there we got a chance to really experience our different cultures because you had more countries on the continent of Africa than you have on the continent of Europe. So we learned a little bit about each other's culture in church. Church became our city hall. Church became our county court. Church became, I mean, everything for us in church. Uh, and we learned more about a spiritual being called creator of this universe that uh, uh, we were able to learn about because Master allowed us to read the Bible. So in the church was born the quotes, as we call them, spiritual songs. And out of those spiritual songs, uh, there were two tentacles that came up quickly. One was what they called blues and the other was what they called jazz. So music then, when you look back at it and study it, the only music art form that's indigenous to America is the music that comes from the African-American culture. Uh, and, and I talked to some, some, some Native Americans, if you will, about it, and they didn't debate with me. So, well, it, it wasn't called America. Yes, you, so so the authentic music was the, the music that came from your culture. And that is the only music that's indigenous to America. And what happens though, in with that music, if, if you look at our culture and, and our lifestyle, the music reflected in it what was going on in our lives, our lifestyles, and our living. It also influenced what was going on in our lives, our lifestyles, and our living. So generally, as it relates to the civil rights movement, you would hear songs that reflected how things were impacting us or hope that we wanted to share with each other and things that we wanted to share was in the music. At Stax, we were able to record music as we were recording, record really the, 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 the background, if you will, or the soundtrack for the civil rights movement, while at the same time uh, continuing to produce and market this authentic music art form that was really beginning to have a serious impact on this country overall. So we were involved because it was about what was going on in our lives, lifestyles, and our living. We didn't take what you might call an activist position or anything like that. We just say a long walk to DC, oh, but I'm on my way. You know, that, 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 I mean, it's time we build bridges instead of walls by the staple singers mm -hmm. and, and, and just one after another. Uh, I remember one of the last songs years ago that was recorded by John Gary Williams of the Mad Lads. This wasn't as much about civil rights as it was about what was going on in society. He said, this whole damn world is going crazy. And that was back then, and you can sing it today, and it's as relevant today as it was back then. So you heard songs that, uh, that was, was about how we acted, reacted, felt, and how we tried to inspire uh, uh, those that were involved in the civil rights movement. And when I say those that were involved, I mean now the leadership, because we tried to inspire them and inspire others 
in the songs that we sing. As a matter of fact, um, I, uh, you know, in 1959, uh, I, I, I uh, had left radio and college and joined, I won't go into all the background on that, Dr. King. Well, it was Reverend Martin Luther King then, where he had the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Workshops in Midway, Georgia. Uh, I became a student teacher and was there teaching and learning uh, 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 leadership as, uh, and how I should uh, carry myself and how I should think uh, uh, as, as a leader. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, that, that uh, influenced me in, in uh, uh, my thinking and my activities in, in the recorded music business in America uh, in general and really positioned me even more so how I, in a manner where I could navigate myself around and through all of this stuff. And I saw racism every day, but I didn't really react to it like that, you know. I mean, I was affected directly, but somehow and for some reason, I didn't let it throw me off, for want of a better way of putting it, from thinking the way I thought and think and pursuing the things that uh, I wanted to pursue at that point in time. Don't tell me it can't be done. If I can think it, I can do it. <laughs> but that's 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 the role. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the role in the civil rights movement. And uh, the, uh, the, there's a song I'm trying to remember. We did it on Eric Mercury, uh, written by Betty Crutcher, entitled. Uh, I cannot think of the title of that song now. But but the essence of it was. No matter, there, is, there isn't any difference between any of us. Color doesn't make the difference. And the thing that's in us is love. And we all have hearts, kidneys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Love changes all colors. That's it. Love changes all colors. And that's, uh, that's and I, I felt that way and lived that way then and now. And don't, uh, I'm aware of it, but I don't let it, I don't let it, I don't let it throw me off. And we didn't do that at Stack. See, what you got to look at, uh, historically, you, you, you know, they talk about diversity out here today and all that kind of stuff. Well, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, S-T-A-X, did not have a, a racist bone in their body. And, and, and it didn't matter about your color. And this is in the middle of all of this stuff. If you came through that front door, you were welcome. If you had talent and you could perform, whether it was sing, write, or play a musical instrument, or whatever the case might be, your color didn't matter. All they wanted was great music. And, 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 and as we came in to those doors, everything that was happening outside the door, we left it out there. I, 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 called, I called it my oasis, where we could escape through all of that stuff was, was, that was going on on the outside. And we influenced other people as a result of that. I mean, there were people who were saying at one point in time to the whites that worked there, why are you there about all those ends? When they left and went home back to their neighborhoods and we'd leave and go back to our neighborhoods and sometimes the question would be raised, but why are you all up there with all those white folks to have all those white folks over here in our neighborhood? Because Soulsville, USA, where Stax was located was right there in, quote, the ghetto <laughs> at, 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 the, at that point in time. But we didn't... We didn't allow it to affect us, but the reality was always there when we went outside that door. It was our haven on the inside of that place, and I'm thankful for that. 
it it uh, it um, it was it's an example of of inclusion. I hear people talking diversity more today than ever before, and, and I say to them, but but it's not about diversity; it's about inclusion. I said, and Stax is an example of that. If you think it won't change you and make you better, just look back at Stax as an example of that because it was inclusion that gave rise to diversity. I mean, that diversity approach, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> just include people. I mean, we're all people. <laughs> yeah, well said. That's really amazing. Beautifully stated. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad I brought that up because <laughs> it's great to get your perspective. Well, yeah. Can't sing, can't dance, <laughs> can hear and feel, and I just feel and see, <laughs> you, you know, this stuff. But that's, that's me. I've been blessed. You are listening to Al Bell on the Music History Project. Such a great interview, and we actually have the full video version posted on our website as well. And if you'd like to see that, you could head over to nam.org, that's N-A-M-M dot org, slash library, search for Al Bell, and it should pop up for you. You know, one of the things that's uh, really cool about uh, Mr. Bell is uh, he's humble. You know, he is telling us what happened but he's not really giving us the overall picture. So I thought it'd be kind of nice to chime in and add my own perspective on his uh, contributions to Stax Records. It was founded in Memphis in 1957, and he came around in 1965 as a director of promotions. Um, and between 1965 and 1968, he did something to basically become co-owner. Now, I mean, three years at NAM, I was still trying to figure out where the bathroom was located. So how does somebody change the, your job description so much so that you are co-owner of an organization? I mean, he kind of went through that in his interview a little too fast because really, the answer to that is he had vision. He had, he had this deep understanding of where he thought the record label should be going. And he wanted to incorporate elements that I think were somewhat scary to the two founders. One of which decided to leave and just say, okay, hey, you take over. Um, which he did. And, um, he incorporated elements that were very important to Memphis and to the civil rights movement at that time and to pop music and to soul music and to rhythm and blues. I mean, he had this vision and, um, to give you a perspective of how hard he worked on that vision in the, um, in the fall of 1969, I think it was. Yeah. 1969. He released nearly simultaneously 27 albums within like four months period of time, of which almost all of them he actually produced all, all of them himself and had the vision of these albums representing what was happening at that moment. So they were all types of styles of music uh, with a long list of different artists and it was his vision that the, that stacks would represent the people. And that's what that statement was all about. And, uh, that's an amazing output. And it, 
During that same time of producing these albums, he also signed a few acts that went on to great stardom. The staple singers, of course, the Emotions, the Soul Children, who had a great hit with The Sweeter He Is. You know, he had this drive and... Um, and it seemed like nothing was really going to stop him because that drive just enveloped the people around him who wanted to do the same thing. Hey, Mr. Bell wants us to do it. Let's do it. Let's figure out a way to make this happen. And I think that uh, charisma and that leadership is really the um, um, the focus of what basically became a cornerstone of his career and the careers of other people. I mean, I mentioned a couple of artists. I forgot to say that uh, Hot Buttered Soul, that fantastic album by Isaac Hayes came out during that same time. And of course, that launched uh, Isaac, uh, Isaac's career as a singer and a songwriter. So um, fantastic stuff happening um, and sort of boom, boom, boom succession. And Al was definitely the driving force. So with that and my excitement, I hope that uh, you uh, will will sort of see some of those examples unfold as he continues to give us his perspective on how his career developed. We're about to hear more about uh, the developments happening at Stax Records as we return back to Al Bell's NAM oral history interview. Well, some of the folks that have been um, so important in spreading the message to me, the staple singers are got to be on the top of that that list, and I'd love to talk a little bit about your association with them and how you came to write that very special song. Well, I met the staple singers in 1957, 58, mm. when I booked a concert here as a disc jockey and also a concert promoter, and and I booked in 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 here Reverend C. L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin. Aretha only had one recording at that point in time on Chess Records uh, and uh, Little Sammy Bryant, the Swanee Quintet, uh, and the Staple Singers. And I'd been playing their music on the air and just loving it. Saw one performance and it got my undivided attention. Aretha blew my mind that day. But at any rate, it got my undivided attention. And um, I, I booked, had four concert dates on them. And, and on the last date, we were in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, uh, and uh, at a high school there. And I loved them so much until I got all my business out of the way quickly so I could get out and hear the staple singers perform. And on, on that occasion, Mavis sang a song by herself. It was the first time she had, in all of the gigs that we had done, she never was singing by herself. But she sang this one song, uh, 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 on my way to heaven anyhow. And I couldn't believe the voice that I heard in that lady and the sound and all of that and fell in love with them. Uh, as time went on, we became like a family. And when I got to Stax, the first act I was trying to find out here and record was the Staple Singers. Got them, got them recorded uh, and, and started building their career on Stax. But again, we were like, like, like family, I, I, I thought, there was no other voice like Mavis and what her voice could do to you in terms of how it would make you feel. I mean, you felt her, <laughs> she couldn't hide it. And you, she, I mean, just period. Uh, and uh, uh, finally, after I was encouraged by someone on the outside that uh, even though Steve Cropper was producing, I assigned them to Steve Cropper. 
Uh, one of the reasons was because I didn't want any of the people on the inside, because I wasn't really considered a producer. I didn't want anyone on the inside to think that I was showing favoritism over any of the other artists or the staple singers. So I asked Steve, who I figured could produce them, and he produced a classic album on them. Uh, but um, one of my friends, as a matter of fact, it was Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson told me, today I'll listen. Now, you know Mom and Pops and Cleetie, he's talking about the staples. He said, uh, uh, Steve is doing, this guy Steve Cropper, he's doing a great job on them. But you know them, you need to go in the studio and record them yourself. I said, but I'm not a producer. He said, Al, you are the only one that can produce the staple singers. You need to go into the studio and produce them. Well, I did. And um, first album titled Staple Swingers. And what I was doing then was trying to give them a perspective that would make cause them to be more appreciated and, and accepted by the general market and not just limited to the religious or the church-going market without compromising their integrity as it related to their beliefs. And uh, that was the idea with staple swingers. Uh, and from that point forward, they didn't know this. Um, and I don't think I've ever shared it publicly. But as I worked to pull together song titles and work with the writers to write songs on particular subject matter or hear songs and appreciate that it fitted, what I really did was take the time in each one of those albums to put together a sermon. I mean, the, 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 the one with I'll Take You There and Respect Yourself in it was called Be Altitude. And what I was doing was running a parallel to the Beatitudes, which was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So this was, uh, that's what that was about at that point in time. And when you hear those songs, you hear messages that are different from uh, any other collection of songs on a given artist at one time when you hear the staple singers. There. And that's what that was about. But I knew that's what they were about. So I just was bringing out the authenticity that I saw in them. Now, that song, and one, one of the songs, I, I, the writers, would, when they heard, when they would hear I was getting ready to do a date on the Staples, then they would come in and start the writers, and how about this song, how about that song? Mac Rice came in, uh, 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 who, who used to be with the Falcons, and, and also was a great writer there at Stax, but he came in one day and he said, Doc, I have a song that I think you really need to record on the Staples Singers. I said, what is it? He said, it's called Respect Yourself. <laughs> and uh, when he finished singing it with, with, with his uh, uh, rhythm that he had on it, uh, I said, Mac, you're right, I agree. Went, recorded it, and came back, and he said, Doc, you messed up my song. I said, what? He said, yeah, my, that rhythm, I don't know where you came from with that rhythm, but that wasn't the rhythm uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, I felt. He said, you really, you really messed up my song. And, and about two months later, after we released it, he said, you know, Doc, I really love you, Doc. You really produced my song. <laughs> and I thank you so much. <laughs> and every time I would see him, that was years later, he would say, you really produced my song. I love you. <laughs> but, but anyway, the other song uh, I had um, up to that point in my life, I had a problem reconciling death. I had had uh, 
my, uh, there were five boys, six all together, but the first boy after me uh, died upon, uh, right after birth with double pneumonia. And then later on, as a matter of fact, I'd move on up, to, up and was in Washington, D.C. at that time in radio, and someone shot and murdered my baby brother. Uh, and uh, later on, uh, another murder, and that was of a baby brother. And that was just difficult for me to deal with that. But I came over here, I was upset looking to find out who, they were all in Little Rock, that came from, I was in Memphis, came over to see, to my back, I was going in to uh, uh, do a session, that session on the Staples and I canceled and to come over to find his murderer. That was all that was on my mind and I spent the time up and down these streets, had a suspect in mind, got to that suspect and found out that I didn't think that person really did it. And this was like a day before the funeral. So one of my friends said, hey man, I mean, you haven't visited your family and, and, and they're gonna have your brother's funeral tomorrow. You gotta give it your family and deal with that funeral. So I went by, got with the family, attended the funeral the next day, came back, and after the funerals, you know, in, in, in our culture and others also, they have what they call, I think it's the repast, where, where they go and the family and friends come together and they eat a, a, a dinner, a lunch, or whatever the case might be, interact with each other, etc., and eventually depart. Well, they had the repast at my father's house, so I came there, but I couldn't interact with the people. I just, uh, I couldn't. So I went out in the backyard, and in the backyard, my father had an old yellow school bus that he used to use to haul cotton choppers and cotton pickers parked under an old oak tree. It had been there for years. And I went out, because it reminded him of where he had come from. By that time, he was a landscaping contractor, etc. So I'm sitting on the hood of this bus and uh, painting and crying. And from out of nowhere, I hear a bass line in my head and the words, I know a place, ain't nobody crying, ain't nobody worried, ain't no smiling faces lying to the races. Oh, oh, ah, 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 I'll take you there. That's where that song came from. And I couldn't write or say anything else after that. Nothing else came after that other than just my crying and my, the emotions that were coming out of me because it was difficult. But at the same time, I didn't realize it then, but in retrospect, I realized I was really letting go of my problem with death. I didn't know it, but I was doing that. And um, got with uh, Mavis when we set up the session and said, Mavis, uh, I'd like for you to sing this song. I don't have but one verse. I've tried to write other verses, but nothing else fits. So we went in and Mavis took death and brought it to life as she sang that song. There are no changes in it from beginning to end. It's the same rhythm feel from beginning to end. I knew as a listener of records, that was a problem because it could be boring. And what I did was I got several takes of her down and told her to make the opening verse the last verse. So it's verse, course, bridge, verse. That was my structure of writing and that I had learned from listening to the writers. Cause, effect, solution. <laughs> but I couldn't write anything else because there was no more 
I mean, there was nothing else to say. And uh, what I had to do and did was spend the time in the studio after I got Mavis down, uh, finding different musical instruments and different sounds that I could integrate into to keep the color changing in the song so it wouldn't be monotonous. And I captured things that we, as we were doing different takes that was coming out of Mavis, just heard just doing something and managed to match them up from different tracks to pull together this one track where you hear her doing all of the things that she's doing in there. I had, I had, a, I wanted to put a harmonica player on it and had Terry Manning, who worked with me on all of this, to play harmonica from the very beginning of the song to the very end of the song. And as I sat trying to mix all of this together and let it end up being what I felt like it should be, because it really wasn't me, that was written through me and the things that were coming through me in that studio was coming through me. And I and it got to a certain point, I said, Terry, right here is where you need to bring in the harmonica. Kill it in all the other places, but right at that part, in going into that third verse, and based on something that Mavis had done, when she said, I've forgotten exactly her expression at that point in time, but it was something that just came out of her on one of the tracks because she felt it at that point in time. And that's when I brought in that harmonica, and it was the magic that allowed us to take it out and after having created the color changes that we had created up to that point in time, it, 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 it added some, 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 some either some, some, some barbecue sauce or, or some, some Louisiana hot sauce on it at, at, at that point in time. And, and, and what she had said uh, 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 that came out of her mouth, it just kind of fitted in. Mm. And I got to tell you, I knew, and this is the only time that I can ever say this and, and say that I knew with absolute certainty. I knew the day that we finished the mix on that song that that song was going to be a hit record. Mm. I knew that. One other time later on, I knew that on a song that uh, we picked up called Whoop There It Is. I just knew, and those are about the only two that I just knew. That's, there's no question in my mind. The other one that came close to it was The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Prince that, that I had, uh, that Prince brought to me to, re to release on him. But that's, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I, I'm not a songwriter. I, I can write lyrics, and, and uh, I'm pretty good at it. But in terms of a melody, that's why, generally speaking, there's always someone with me or I'm involved with someone else when, when, when uh, I've written the songs that I have written. So coming up next in this podcast, we're going to get really deep into a very interesting topic, and that is Al Bell's association with Dr. Martin Luther King. And it's... It's honestly just so insightful and um, very historical and a, tr a real treat. So enjoy this next section of Al Bell's 2018 oral history interview. Because of my closeness with Dr. King, and this is critically important from an historical standpoint overall, uh, I realized, uh, well, after leaving Dr. King, I left uh, Dr. King, went back into... Uh, uh, the radio business, when I separated, separated because he told me that uh, as a student teacher that what I was teaching the students about and things that I was doing wasn't what I should be doing in the passive resistance movement. And um, uh, I said, well, you know, Doc, uh, I'm about uh, economic 
development and economic empowerment. Well, he didn't tell me out of his mouth at that point in time, but he was the same way. He was about economic development and economic empowerment. He said to me, but he said, what you don't understand, Al, you haven't been outside of Arkansas. And I've been all around this country and halfway around the world. And I've met all kinds of people. He said, but you don't know that the people outside of America don't even know that we even exist in America as a people. He says, so what we have television now. So what we have to do is passively be activists. He said, if we're passive, then what happens, we've got to let these police, put the police dogs on them. We've got to let them hang and kill us. He literally, yes, we've got to let that happen. He said, because when it happens, it's sensational and they're going to put it on television. And as a result of that, people around the world will see, first of all, that we exist in America, that we even exist here because they don't know. And secondly, they will see how America is treating us. He says, so that must take place before you continue to pursue what you're talking about as it relates to economic development and economic empowerment. That must happen. And then after I've done that, then you can be about the business of doing what you're doing or talking about doing. I'm a kid. I mean, I'm a teenager, you know, 19, 20, 18, somewhere right in there. And, uh, but I maintained my communication with him. Most of the people around him didn't know that he and I talked as we did. And I made contributions to the organization and to the organization through him and things that he was trying to do uh, uh, and kept up with everything that he was doing. Well, I was watching him and he was putting on at that point in time what they were calling the poor people's, I think it was another name, but it was celebration, but really was the poor people's march on Washington. So I was talking to all of the people, not all of the people, but people on the inside of the organization. They were telling me about how it was building momentum. And Doc was spending a good deal of his time coming into Memphis because that's where you had the sanitation workers strike going on at that time. Well, as I talked to the people in Atlanta and they were telling me, I began to find out that there were more white people that were signing up with Dr. King for the Poor People's March on Washington than were black people. I said, well, maybe it could be because of the population size of white America vis-a-vis our population, uh, but as I listened to more and more of what I was hearing, I realized that it wasn't about that. It was about these people were poor, and these were white people, and they're wanting to now challenge the government, so they're joining up with Dr. King. I said, well, now that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem, because uh, I said, just you know, he can go into Washington talking to myself. He can go into Washington, a half million black people, no problem. They can handle that. They can handle us. They've learned how to handle us and been handling us since day one. But this black man going in with possibly a million white people and 250,000 black people, that's a problem. I said, that's in guerrilla warfare. They call that incipient insurrection. And that's an overthrow of government. I said, they can't, they can't, they, they can't allow him to do that. Uh, at that. He had gotten to the point then when he realized that civil rights legislation was important, but it wasn't generating anything to our economic development as a people. He had started speaking out about the, uh, uh, the war in Vietnam, and uh, he had started speaking out about um, the economy and other things at that point in time. So I realized, wait a minute, with Doc doing this, 
I'm concerned about him because I'm hearing more and more negative things about him than I've heard before coming from white people that I knew. Mm. And uh, I said, he needs to take a sabbatical and I gotta tell him this. So I told him as he came into Memphis for a march there with the sanitation workers, I said, Doc, uh, I'm gonna write a song for you that I wanna give to you. He said, oh, great. Write me a song, Albertus. <laughs> so uh, I started writing this song called uh, Send Peace and Harmony Home. Well, I didn't mean back to the spirit world. I mean, I thought he needed to, you know, go back and, you know, do some evangelism and his preaching and let things kind of settle down a bit and then start becoming that leader that was active out here because I thought it was too dangerous. So I, I went, wrote the song, was in the studio recording it on, a, on an artist, Shirley Walton. Shirley couldn't really feel it. I couldn't get it right, the song right until Booker T uh, got with me and Eddie Floyd and helped me get the melody right on it <laughs> and get the rhythm feel right and all of that. But I was in the studio recording and Shirley couldn't feel it. We had done, I don't know, 10 or 12 takes on it and as the tape was rolling for maybe the 12th or 13th time, just as it started rolling, Homer Banks, one of our writers, opened the door to the studio and said, Dr. King just got shot and killed. And Shirley started crying. And when you hear that record today, that's what you're hearing is her as she's singing. And I, I, did, I let her sing it. And after that, I, I, that was it. I did the mix on that, manufactured a few copies, and gave some to um, Mrs. King and to several other people and told a congressman in that district, Congressman Dan Kirkendall, I told him the story and the background, even what I thought was going on with that Poor People's March and I had written that song. He said, wow. He said, uh, give me a copy of that. I'm gonna read that into the congressional record. He took it, read it into the congressional record and it's there, but that's part of my whole songwriting experience there. That one, and I thought it, I thought it, I don't even know how to interpret it other than to say, I don't want to use the term ironic because it's too loose, but for me in this case, but at the very moment that he was being killed, I was recording that song to give to him, to tell him now to be careful because of and to take that, I was going to use it my, as my basis for send peace and harmony home and then talk to him like that and ease into it. You know, that was, that was the idea. Uh, 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 go back to Atlanta and just kind of settle down for a while and uh, wait on some of this stuff to stop because it was becoming bitter, bitter, real bitter. And it also, and I got to tell you, it, it caused me to appreciate and, 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 and I know man, uh, putting this on record, whether I'm right or wrong, is, is, is irrelevant to me. It's just uh, a perspective that I had at that point in time. I realized that uh, a significant portion of racism didn't have anything to do with color. It had to do with a socioeconomic group. And that's a working class and keeping you in a position where you got a working class or the underworking class or whatever, and it takes that uh, class of people uh, to, to, to 
you know, generate the revenue uh, that's needed for those that are part of the ruling class. And that was exposed, or was gonna be exposed. And I saw it in retrospect. If all these white people are going into Washington, well, and in there with us, well, they're being treated as the same. And I began to realize in some instances then that we had our ghettos and they had their trailer parks. Hadn't realized all of that until afterwards, but that's just another perspective uh, on life in America. And Martin Luther King was in the same neighborhood as Stacks, right? Is it? Well, he was just a few blocks up yeah. the street at the at the Lorraine, Lorraine Motel. It was very close. I yes. Think. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's where we used to go. That's the only place where uh, there was no other place in Memphis, Tennessee, where blacks and whites could assemble and not have a problem except the Lorraine Motel. The, our, our writers would go, Steve Cropper and Eddie Floyd and Otis Redding, they would go in there and write. And what would happen in the swimming pool, even there would be times when the whites and blacks would be in the swimming pool at the Lorraine Motel swimming. And I would literally see police cars go down the street and wouldn't even stop to bother them. Any other time it would be a problem. And I don't know why to this very day that was the case, but that was the case at the Lorraine Motel. Was it because of the ownership, perhaps, or? I don't know. The ownership wow. was black, black-owned, really? and it's where, I mean, it's the only hotel where blacks could stay mm. in Memphis, you know, and you had that across America, you know, basically. Not basically, in fact, across America, even into New York. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. uh, Very I don't know, I don't know what that was. I, they just, they didn't, but they didn't. I don't know, I don't mm. know where. Mm. Fascinating history. Unbelievable. Like I said, when we first started, I wish we had six days to get together. <laughs> this is un unbelievable. I mean, this is just such a great interview. And um, gosh, all the stuff that he just shared uh, with his experience with Dr. King. And I mean, it's just like you said, Mike, before, it's historical and such a great snapshot into, you know, that time frame and the world and all of that. Um I just really, really loved his comment of, um, you know, what Dr. King said to him about being passive and allowing people to see what was really happening. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing that even rings true today. Um, but yeah, just a great snapshot into the history of that time frame and his personal influence into that as well. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. Um, just, just an incredible interview. Um, coming up next, we're going to hear the conclusion of this interview, and Al's going to be talking about John Fry, someone that is also in the NAM Oral History Program, so be sure to head online and check out his interview as well. Um, so here it is, Al Bell, wrapping up his 2018 NAM Oral History interview. You know, a few things that um, I would like to, to document um, is... Um, a couple of relationships that you've had during your career. I'd love to make sure that we include today um, because of our limited time. But um, John Fry, we were talking about earlier. Uh, yes. I'd love to have you tell me a little bit about him. John Fry was, first of all, a dear, dear friend. And I mean in the true sense of a friend. He was the person that whenever I had something that I needed to discuss and go and talk to someone that I knew would be objective, whether it was business or whether it was experiences, regardless, I could talk to John Fry. 
and I'd go and talk to John Fry about things and thank him for his advice. And he would always say to me, why are you thanking me? I got more out of this conversation than you did. <laughs> but, but I would always go and could do that with pride. I mean, in some very secretive things when we were going through all of the challenges by the government and what have you, I would go and talk to John Fry about those things. And John Fry would, uh, in many instances, give me encouragement. In other instances, explain to me, well, Al, you know, that's just the way it is. You got to figure out how to, how to live with it. And, and uh, he, he, he helped us uh, at Stacks any way he possibly could. And uh, uh, in addition to being the studio where we would go and do, as a matter of fact, all of the recordings, practically all of the recordings that I produced, I did them at, at, at Ardent Studios. I did the Staple Singers at Ardent Studios. I did Hot Buttered Soul on Isaac Hayes at Ardent Studios. And it was John Fry that kept letting me know, you don't have enough recorded yet for an album, Al. <laughs> I told him we were gonna do the long song. I was gonna just let Isaac go on and on and get as much, cause I had my concept on that of how I didn't have it refined until at, at the uh, very end after we, we had recorded everything. But John was one of the few people uh, that I could go and talk to about whatever it was that was on my mind and I could talk to him. Uh, he could t tell me things in a lay sense that I didn't understand about technical uh, uh, equipment and things like that, about the 16 track and the 24 track and this and would explain to me the highs, the lows, and the mid-range and take time to show that to me. I didn't learn how to engineer, but at least I knew a little bit more because John would take the time to teach me and share that with me. Uh, he was really giving birth to rock and roll. Uh, uh, well, not rock and roll, but rock. And at that time, rock was becoming the music that was the popular music in white America. And CBS Records, run by Clive Davis, was the number one company out here, and it was all rock. And uh, John was building that and started building, building a rock roster and a, and, and a rock recorded music production concept. And you hear it in, in, a, in an act where we distributed on his label an act called Big Star. Big Star was beginning to explode in America. Uh, and uh, there were some people, because it was Stax, uh, what are they doing with these white acts over here? And not only what are they doing with these white acts over here in this act called Big Star that's creating uh, disruption. Mm -hmm. I just learned that word. We didn't know it back then. Disruption in our, in our rock world out here. <laughs> so we got to stop that. <laughs> and they, stop, they stopped it and it really, it really hurt me because of what it did to John and what he was trying to do with Ardent at that point in time. He went on after that. Uh, the rock acts started coming in, ZZ Top, you just go right on down the list, and, and they started coming in. And I did not tell him until really, maybe somewhere a year or two before he transitioned, he had to live with, uh, not, not well, he lived with, not had to, he lived with not knowing what really happened to Big Star, but that Big Star was stopped. They stopped them at the underground level and killed them in the marketplace. He just couldn't understand why they didn't happen because we had started off building and getting, getting some traction and all of a sudden, 
And I finally had to tell him that that was done on purpose. It wasn't because of anything he did or we did. It was done on purpose because they had to stop that act in the marketplace. And didn't tell him until, I don't know, maybe, maybe a year or two at the most before he transitioned. But a dear, 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 dear friend that I love and that I miss. I miss. I miss John Fry. I appreciate you sharing that. You know? Yes. Yeah. I found him to be an amazing guy, as I told you earlier. So yes. thank you for that. Um, I'm kind of curious. Were you around when Elvis went in and did the Stax recordings? I sure was. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, that's the first time that I met him. Uh, personally, uh, knew of him and all of that from the very beginning of his career. Uh, and when it was in the studio when uh, he was in recording, and I guess maybe 15 or 20 minutes, the two of us stood talking and interacting with each other. And during that 15 to 20 minutes, I talked to a man that I felt like I had known all of my life. And we had never met before, but we talked to each other like we had known each other all of our lives. And that's, that's the Elvis that uh, I met that night uh, and the Elvis that I've lived with from then until now because of what I felt and the interaction that took place between the two of us. We both knew it was something different. Couldn't explain it, but it was just I can't explain it now, but I felt like I knew him and had known him all of my life. I wasn't talking to a stranger. We were talking to each other like we knew who we were talking to. And we really did based on what we were saying and interacting with each other. That's my experience with Elvis. I respected him, loved his singing. I mean, loved his singing. Loved me tender. <laughs> but but, but what, what, uh, what I, I remember hearing Sam Phillips who produced him said that Elvis had come by and uh, was re renting the studio to, 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 to record a song for his mother. And, and uh, 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 Sam said he went to the restroom uh, and had to go to the restroom prior to starting the session. And Elvis was sitting on the couch right out in front of the restroom door. And when he came out of the restroom door, so Elvis was sitting there playing on the guitar. That's all right, little mama, not any way you choose. And he said, Sam said he looked up and said, whoa, no, we're going in and record. We're going to record that song you're singing now. <laughs> Forget about your mother. <laughs> we're going to do a session. <laughs> and that's how it got started <laughs> with Elvis Presley and, and all of the material that he recorded after that because he was really singing the blues and soul, army, whatever you want to call it. He just put the Elvis Presley on it <laughs> and did a great job at it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you get to meet Otis? Oh my God. Yes, I did. Uh, Otis uh, was also, as a matter of fact, I met Otis prior to coming to Stax. Uh, when I was at WLOK in Memphis in radio, when Otis would come in doing his sessions, he would get in touch with me because I was playing his music and we developed a you know, relationship. Uh, but we would book Dick Kane Cole together, this jockey on the station and I would get together and when Otis would come to town to record, 
we'd get one date from him and do a concert, so it allowed us to make some extra money. But after getting to Stax, uh, Otis and I developed a, I mean, brother to brother, close relationship. Uh, when uh, I was at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, when they announced over the public address system that Otis Redding's plane had crashed and he was killed, and I lost control of my body. I mean, I, all of the life left me. I fell on the floor and finally got myself back up. Uh, and without getting into all of the details after that, it took me 10 to 15 years before I could even listen to an Otis Redding recording, hear him sing, or even discuss Otis Redding mm -hmm. because of what of the closeness and what that took out of me at that point in time. I've regained it, but it took me some time. That's how close, without talking for 30 minutes, that's how close Otis and I was. People in, 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 in the company didn't know of that side line, if you will, for want of a better way to express it, relationship, not even his family. Zelma didn't know how close his wife, she didn't know how close Otis and I were and the things that we talked about. There again, that was just one of those, we know each other. It's like that, 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 kind, that kind of relationship, absolute trust, 1000%, never a question, never a question between me or him about anything. It was just there. And Otis would talk to me about things that I don't imagine he talked to anybody else about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we talked about many times, and it was painful. It's, it's great, when I say great, I mean in terms of him being a unique artist, how we had problems at times, quite often, getting play on his music, even on black program stations, because they said, well, he sounds too Bama, positive, apostrophe B-A-M-A, meaning Alabama. Uh, uh, and we don't really want to play uh, any blacks that sound like this. It's black programmers. As a matter of fact, in Atlanta, Georgia, the black station there never played Otis Redding. And Paul Drew at WQXI in Atlanta, the pop station, played Otis Redding in Atlanta and broke Otis Redding out in Atlanta and in parts of the South based on the coverage area uh, uh, of that station. We didn't really start getting the attention that we should get until after we did the European tour in 1967 when that continent went crazy over Otis Redding and the rest of the Stax artists, he started getting more appreciation uh, here in, in America from both blacks and whites uh, because of how much Europe had embraced, uh, embraced him at that point in time. But no, that one, that, one, that one took something out of me that took some time to get back to Otis Redding. That, that one of a kind. I heard a rumor that uh, the staple singers were to do a backup singing for him. Did you know about that? That could have been possible because I can imagine him asking, but I don't ever recall that taking place. Hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't recall that. Wouldn't that have been fun? Oh my God, <laughs> 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 would that, I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? 
I mean, and Pops playing that guitar the way that I can imagine what that would have done to Otis. Right. <laughs> and him and Mavis. Oh, please. And then Pops chiming in. And I'm just thinking about this in my head right now. I mean, you talk about a phenomenon. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's the rumor. We wish that it happened. The rumor. <laughs> well, I sure appreciate your time. I wish we had. Uh, maybe we could do a second if you wouldn't mind one day. I would love no, that. I, no, we must. I would love because, that. Because we must. Because there are, there are some mentors mm. in my life that I'd like to talk about because I am a reflection in many instances of who they were. And uh, they taught me the business. And it's important for today's youth to have mentors, the meaning the elders that they can listen to and learn things that they don't know and don't know that they don't know from, 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 from their mentors. I had mentors that taught me all of the things I needed to know about this business, uh, things that people don't even know today. It was, and, and it's a whole list of them, that, but, uh, but, but it's important. And uh, I, I recently they named me a couple of months ago, a McElroy professor at the University of Arkansas. And uh, one of the things that I'm setting out to do now is to create that kind of relationship between those students and people that we bring out of the music community, both musicians, business people, so that they can learn what they don't know, the fundamentals about this business. Because uh, right now, there's a greater opportunity now than ever before in this business, even though it may be transitioning and in some instances falling apart, but, but, but in the process is creating voids and, and that, that are waiting to be filled. If you know the fundamentals of this business, you can be more successful today than ever before. The demand for authentic music is greater today than it ever has been. One of the reasons that contributed to that has been Spotify and the likes, because these companies have put their entire catalogs, millions and millions of songs going back to the 40s and whatever, and these young people today are hearing the authentic blues, the authentic jazz, the authentic bluegrass and all of that, and, and they're realizing, oh, this is great music that we haven't heard before. The, the, these young people are learning now and hearing authentic music art. And they are now beginning to appreciate authentic music art and perform authentic music art, hearing those that recorded in the 40s and the 50s, etc., etc., etc. And uh, that is a mentor in a sense. But what we need in between now are the business people that understand the fundamentals so they know what to do with it in today's marketplace. If you know the fundamentals, then all of this new technology and whatever won't throw you off or you won't be lost trying to figure out how to get music in, uh, performed in such a manner where you can develop and create a career for the artist because it's difficult to create careers out here today unless you know that. Hmm. And that's know the fundamentals. No doubt about it. Yeah. That's absolutely right. It is. It is. And that's why I'm making the commitment that I'm making now to build that 21st century recorded music and entertainment industry. And I'm not talking about the past. I'm talking about the present and the future. And it's making sure these kids know I have an obligation to do that because I know I got to. I can't leave here and take it with me. We've got to have an obligation to pass it on. 
and I've been blessed to have that opportunity to do it with what is happening to us in, Fayette, in Northwest Arkansas, mm -hmm. up in Fayetteville, Bentonville, Rogers, et cetera, that area of the country, and I'm thankful for it. That's why I want to keep talking to you because you need to know about and knew about this no new history that's being built and help me fashion a lot of it. I'm with you. All right, you're going. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you sold me. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. What a pleasure. You made me made me do a lot of reliving, and I found myself in the middle of talking remembering things in my head while I was talking to you <laughs> and I'd forget what I was talking about because you you open you shook some cobwebs and I remember oh wow <laughs> thank you I love doing that <laughs> well you do you were successful <laughs> you did it to me today <laughs> oh, I'm so glad and and brought things to mind that I hadn't that I hadn't thought about before you know when you're busy mm -hmm. living all of this I tell people, well, I, I, I didn't realize I had been inducted into 30 uh, halls of fame. And, and uh, so what, because I never paid attention to any of that kind of stuff. I was about getting with these artists, you know, and building their career and being the guy, the mad scientist, if you will, in the back room and figuring out marketing strategies and all of that. As a matter of fact, many of these awards that back then, I didn't even go to pick them up. I'd send somebody on my behalf, and would you go pick it up and tell them I thanked them and all that, and let me get back over here to marketing or doing whatever. <laughs> I mean, because it, it was, well, it was work. I mean, we, that, that racism, man, I can't explain to you uh, how difficult just on the music industry and what we were trying to do in the music industry, how difficult it was for us. I mean, I just can't explain. That's it's miraculous. Mm. Talk about the impossible, supposed to be impossible, and didn't realize the impact that we were having at stacks on the whole of the industry. I didn't. I did. I did not realize that because uh, we were just too busy trying to do. But we were doing and make great music. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Estelle and Jim were about to make great music, you know, and that's, but anyway. Well, you kept doing that. That's the thing that was really amazing to me. I mean, I was thinking about the Watts recordings. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I've heard that being an inspiration to a lot of things that had come after that, you know, and the Farm Aid and the Live Aid and, and even We Are the World, all those yes. things were taking a concept that was what I think you guys created. Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. And they laughed at us because they said, you want to rent the Los Angeles Stadium? And what's the name of your company, staff? Who are your artists? Uh, well, this, this, and the only artist they knew was Isaac Hayes because we had just had, you know, the, the shaft. So they knew about that. And they said, you want the LA Stadium? This is where the Los Angeles Rams played. What are you talking about? So I said, yes, but they said, well, write us a check. So no problem. We turned it going through the contracts and no LAPD, no this, no that. And they would, the rascals, they thought it was a joke, but they wouldn't let us have concessions. <laughs> but, but anyway, no LAPD. We had our own security, no guns, nowhere. And with 112,000 black people there from about 11 o'clock, uh, a little bit earlier in the morning until midnight, and not one single act of violence. Not one single act of violence. A lot came uh, out as a result of it. As a matter of fact, 
as UCLA or USC, and I think it's Yale, one of the others that's using it uh, to teach uh, people how to produce uh, documentaries. I said, what? Yeah, it's been doing it for six or seven years. I said, I didn't know that. So, but yeah, they're, they're underground, there are a whole lot of things happening, but watch stacks that you don't know about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but that, that was a highlight. And, I'm, and to be able to walk out, first of all, to put 112,000 people in there, that was, mm. and, and, but we did it by promoting it as an event and a family gathering. We said, watch stack, watch stacks, watch stacks. We didn't call the artist names until about six weeks before the event itself. We had the planes flying in the air with the tail on it that said, watch stacks. We go, I mean, we did everything, you, you name it, all the creative stuff that you can imagine doing to promote it, to promote it, and did it. But to walk out there that day and look up in that stand, those stands, and see, I didn't know at that time it was 112,000 people. I just thought, feel 112,000 people was a highlight in my life. And to see, I mean, to, you, you saw really a cross-section of the entire African-American community. You had the Crips and the Bloods, two gangs, sitting there side by side, having fun, enjoying each other. You saw the great-grandmother, the great-grandchild. I mean, just all of us, Ruby D. Ozzie Davis, just every segment of our community represented there that day. And when, when, when we decided uh, with the title, Watch Stacks, uh, I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, the subtitle has to be The Living Word. And uh, David Wolper, uh, who's Jewish, Wolper said, oh, you can't do that. And then the guys with me and all the blacks were saying, no, you can't do that, that's sacrilegious. I said, no, 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 it's not. I said, when you go back and you read the Bible from the book of Genesis to Revelations, and I have, I said, when you read through that, all you're reading about is the life, lifestyles, and what was going on with the children of Israel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it is in there. <laughs> that's that book, and that's about those people and about the principles uh, that are there. I said, well, what we have here is a, is a slice of what goes on with us as African Americans in our lives and lifestyles. And, and I mean, Richard Pryor added, added to it that really pulled it off and all together for us. But that, that uh, 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 I wanted, I wanted it to be appreciated from that standpoint so blacks could see a slice of our lives. And so white Americans and Americans could get a peephole into our lives and see that we weren't what we had been painted to be at that point in time. The living word. This is what we're really about. What you see here, a family situation. We're about family. We're about working together with each other and loving each other. That, and they let me alone after I finished my sermon, but, but I was in a position where he couldn't change it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they're time. I appreciate your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. What an honor. So that will conclude the uh, interview that uh, we were so privileged to conduct with Mr. Al Bell as part of the NAM Oral History Program. And, you know, a couple of thoughts, uh, especially about that last segment that I just wanted to share with you, one of which is um, if you're not familiar with the Watts Stacks Festival, um, it was made into a documentary and it is completely worth watching. It's unbelievable that uh, Al had this 
peaceful response to the riots there in Los Angeles and formulated this 1972 event. Uh, you know, it was a one-day festival, but it was really an event. And um, and I loved him talking about it here. I kind of wish that we had more time that he could have talked about it more because it was so influential. And it was his vision. It was his idea. Uh, another thought is he didn't talk too much about a couple of other little episodes of his career, one of which was he really played a very important role in uh, Motown Records Group, uh, which he headed uh, in the 1980s. Uh, along with, of course, its founder, Barry Gordy. And uh, it was because of Al's experiences with mergers in the record business that they were able to sell the Motown label. And uh, I think he was a great influence on that whole chapter of that important record label's career in life. And then the other thing that uh, happened was uh, shortly after his involvement with Motown, he started his own record label, called Bellmark, for which uh, released some really important stuff. Um, the, uh, the record label that Prince was on at the time turned down his request to, um, to release an al- or a song called uh, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. And if you are a Prince fan, as I am, you will know that that was a phenomenal recording and we would not have it if it wasn't for Mr. Bell's vision of having that uh, produced. He also had the vision of um, producing another one that we like to chuckle about. But in 1983, or excuse me, 1993, um, he produced and released the uh, tag team record, Whoops, There It Is. Um, and I'm sure that really helped him in uh, his retirement. Um <laughs> And retirement is really not a word you really give to Mr. Bell. He's been so active in so many things. He's a professor, he's a writer, he's a lecturer, and he has been given so many amazing awards. I was looking at the list and um, it's it, it floors me. He's been inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the Arkansas Businessmen's uh, Hall of Fame. Um, he was given a special award by the Grammy trustees. He was given the W.C. Handy Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, on and on it goes. Uh, and, and well-deserved. And I'm so glad that he is getting the accolades um, uh, that represent the amazing career that he has. So with that, I think we uh, like to conclude our podcast with a final thought. And mine is just a very uh, personal one in that, um, you know, while I was sitting there I, um, conducting this interview with him, I happened to look down at our feet and I was reminded of a line from um, Mike Wallace, who was the, the, the chief interviewer for 60 Minutes on television for many, many years. And Mr. Wallace said that he was privileged to sit toe-to-toe with so many of the great leaders of the world during his career. And I just, I kind of took extra pride in thinking that I'm sitting toe-to-toe with this guy who has done so much. I mean, he sat toe-to-toe with Martin Luther King. Um, you know, he had done so many amazing things in his career and his life. And to have the privilege of being there toe-to-toe with him is something I will always cherish. 
I am so surprised that you have not mentioned Elvis once during this, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Not even the toe-to-toe thing. You didn't even bring up Elvis then. (laughs) Do you want to say something with Elvis at all? Well, of course, it was awesome that he told us some Elvis stories. I was trying to, like, not be always the Elvis fan. Um, But, of course, I did bring him up during the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Just felt like you needed to at least bring that up a little bit. Uh, It wouldn't be be a podcast with Dan without some Elvis association, I think, right? (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, what an amazing amazing interview. I think we've all said that now a hundred times during this, but uh, one, my one big thing that I just was kind of blown away. I mean, there's a lot of things that I was blown away with, with this interview, but uh, his, his story about writing, I'll take you there with um, after his brother's funeral. I mean, I know that song. I've heard that song hundreds and hundreds of times, but I've never, you know, now I'm going to forever listen to that completely differently. And have this great image in my head of him, um, you know, kind of taking that walk away from uh, the procession and the funeral and, and coming up with those words. And it's such a beautiful story. So uh, that was a great little insight for me. Yeah. And same here, agreeing with everything that you guys say about this incredible interview. And I just wanted to say for my final thought that if this topic really interests you, I highly encourage you to check out a different podcast episode that we did, episode 16, which was all about music and the civil rights movement. Um, Kind of a similar topic there and um, very interesting stuff in that episode as well. And you can also head over to the NAM website and under Al's interview, um, we have the civil rights tag there and that will show all of our interviews in the collection um, that talk about uh, civil rights or anything to do with that movement. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, Be sure to tune in in two weeks to hear from us again. And until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.